This is part one of Taekwondo and Korean History Explains Everything. This is Sam. This is Jay. And this is Southpaw. On this Southpaw, we have Jay from the Red Star Over Asia podcast to discuss his article, When Taekwondo Ruled the World. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and Red Star Over Asia? Yeah, so um, I was a student activist in Iowa fighting for free college for all and other issues. Um sort of separately but not separately i met a couple um friends in the same circle but who were um, either organizing in korea or used to be organizers and then moved to korea and um when COVID started we decided that we should start a podcast because a lot of our kind of movement work was kind of on the down low at the time and we thought it would be a good idea to try to connect um, organizers, activists, and academics from across Asia or those who study Asia and try to connect them together. And that was the um, original intention for Red Star Over Asia. So then you did some living in Korea. Tell us a little bit about that as well. Then you lived in Korea before, you lived in the US, and you've gone back and forth a few times. Yeah, yeah. So, like, uh, I guess the short story would be I was born and raised in New Jersey, but left and have never been back since I was eight. So kind of like that Bruce Springsteen song. Um, Lived in Vietnam for around six years, which for um, a variety of reasons, usually involving the the recession. Um, Then uh, my family moved to Gwangju, South Korea, because my mother's side is from Kangjin, which is in the Chilodo area. I lived there for three years. Um, I went to a, a foreign school, which was kind of funny because it was actually partially funded by the Mormon church, which I didn't know until halfway my time in there. Um, then I ended up moving back to the U.S. to start college. Now it's the first time I was back in the States in a decade. Um, once COVID started, I uh, dropped out. And um, now I'm about to uh, start my mandatory military service so I can keep my Korean passport. So you mean in Korea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then in a way, you kind of have a perspective, even though you were born in the U.S., because you're able to speak the language and you have experience in the U.S., you know the U.S. well, but at the same time, you're able to look at it from an outside perspective. Yeah, no, I think, you know, for better or for worse, traveling abroad is was kind of probably my pathway to the left in the sense it just, like, gave me the conditions to, like, really just think about geopolitical issues, but also just about why the system's the way it is and what my role is in it. You know, I don't know. It, it doesn't like a weird way of explaining it, but I just think that people who are in, like, a transitory space are, like, the ones that generally kind of become radicals. And it also seems like, the two areas you lived in the U.S., Iowa, Jersey, 
are known to be more of like right wing areas, but then the places you lived abroad, like Vietnam and where you are in Korea, tend to be known as left wing areas. So even if you weren't political in those areas, it's somehow like in the ether. Oh yeah, no, I mean, um, this is just kind of give you like a small example. One of the like things that were kind of a culture shock for me. So I was raised Catholic. My my mother is very Catholic. I've an aunt who's a nun. Um, but the Catholic Church in Korea is kind of. I mean, I wouldn't say it's like a. It's like leftist. It's not like liberation churches in South America. But you know, it's like historically they've given asylum to communist organizers during the junta period. And the church I went to specifically, because I, I went to an English language church, which was which meant it was like a church for like migrant Filipinos. And it just was very like left leaning. Like I remember the vice bishop came and he made this like was like like dumping speech about, you know, we gotta stop the Pakune administration because he's trying to she's she's threatening democracy. The Korean society doesn't treat you like human beings, they treat you like dogs, and that's not right. It was just like this very militant speech for Easter. You know, and then, you know, I ended up going, trying to meet some Catholics in the U.S. Cause, eh, you know, why not? It's college. You want to try out new ideas. You know, and it was just like shocked. It's like, these are like not the same people, like very right wing, really, really obsessed with abortion, you know, gay marriage. You know, I remember they were, they were talking, they were, they were celebrating like a planned parenthood clinic shutting down. And I was just the only one. She's like, wait, what? So this was not a Korean Catholic church. No, no, this was just a bunch of like, um, you know, good old boys in the Midwest, you know, not to like, not to dig on the Midwest, but, you know, they were like suburban, middle class, white. I think that's one thing to clarify for a lot of listeners who aren't Korean. If you're from the US or even from like Latin America, you might associate Catholicism as being very conservative. Though, to your point that you raised, there's a lot of liberation movements that came out of churches in Latin America. So it actually depends. But if you're not Latino, if you're just, let's say, white living in the U.S., Catholic churches tend to be very conservative. I guess also if you're from like very right-leaning, formerly colonized countries, maybe like the Philippines, it's again also right-wing. But for Koreans, it tends to be the other way. Not to say that they're communists or anything, but Catholics tend to be much more left-leaning. And it's the Protestants in Korea and Protestant Korean Americans, which are by far the biggest population in the U.S. I think Korea is 60% atheist, whereas the U.S. is 90% Protestant. So the militant right-wing part of Korea and Korean Americans tends to be Protestants and Catholics tend to be not so right-wing. So just to recalibrate for people who are listening. Yeah, well, um, like Korea, South Korea's first president, Lee Seung-man. Yeah, Lee Seung-man, his whole thing was to bring a lot of that prosperity gospel, early evangelical Christianity to Korea and make it more Americanized. Because a lot of it was about being pro-American and Catholicism was too European. That's kind of the funny reason Catholicism became like kind of seen as left-wing Korea was that like, probably there's some like deeper roots to it, but like, Another factor was it was kind of an accident of there was like a power struggle between like those who were like aligned with the Catholic Church and those aligned with Protestant churches in the first government. And because Yisung Man was Protestant, he favored his own sect, which caused Catholics to be seen as like the liberal democratic opposition, which I was just think is like, it's like a very arbitrary reason the Catholic Church became a very like, or like was seen as like a progressive force for a long time in Korea. It's still viewed like that today, right? Whenever you have a Catholic person running for president, 
they're seen as like a lefty communist, right? Automatically. Yeah, well, Moon Jae-in was Catholic. Um, no Mui-hun was Catholic or Buddhist. Kim, you know, Kim Dae-jung was definitely Catholic. Yeah, so I guess the three liberal presidents were all Catholics. That's so, yeah, I didn't, I never really thought about that. Korea was very much about being pro-American. It didn't have like the legacy of being colonized by like a European country where they would have brought over Catholicism. It was really neo-colonized or occupied by the U.S. and they brought over their religion, American Protestantism. Yeah, you know, maybe it's just because I'm from New Jersey, but sometimes I just like to joke. It was just really a struggle between like Italians and um, wasps, <laughs> but in like another country. <laughs> yeah. There definitely is some of that within the Korean community as well, where it's like, you know, if you ever see the movie like The Outsiders or whatever, right, where the Catholics were seen as like lower class with Koreans, the Korean Protestants very much see themselves as being more American, more waspy. And then they look down on Korean Catholics as being more lower class because they go to mass with like Latinos and like Filipinos and other like darker people of color. So there's a lot of colorism that Koreans associate with that, right? I was just thinking about, um, have you ever, like, not a mega church, but have you ever been to, like, those, like, um, I don't know what to call them. These, like, cream prize in churches that are, like, very amped up with, like, electric guitars and <laughs> a lot of things. It's just, I was just kind of <laughs> thinking about that because, you know, like, the, like, famous, like, Catholic experience in Korea is that, like, you're not supposed to enjoy mass. It's, like, a service, right? You're supposed to be bored at <laughs> bored as hell for, like, an hour or two. Yeah. That's why you don't meet a lot of super, super, like, Korean catholic people who are like super spiritual because you know they just see it as some kind of service they do but they don't get all amped up about it yeah no they're they're um they're too bored to be annoying but <laughs> it's just like i remember i went to my first like i went to like a prize in church once just like a korean prize in church it's called like onuri which i think was like a, it's like a mega church in korea but they had like a satellite campus in vietnam it was the, like a weirdest fucking experience i've ever been to it was just like I don't know, it was like a couple dozen people and they were all just like standing, waving their hands and just like doing doing all those motions. And I was just, it really shocked me just because I was just like not my experience with other Koreans. We were like, always like, like kind of joke, we're like a very like prim and like, proper people. And just like, you know, the kind of things you would see in like one of those like mega church videos where they're, you know, like, oh, he's my savior. And you're just waving their hands. And it's just like, ah, this is what happens when you Americanize Koreans. So what mainline American Christians might see as like evangelical or fundamental, that is the mainline Protestant church in Korea or for Korean Americans. That's like the only type of church a lot of them are used to. So when they go to like a Protestant American church that's mostly white, that isn't like that, it trips them out because they're like, wait a minute, like, I thought this was like how all of Protestant Christianity was. I thought it was all supposed to be uniform. So they don't know any difference either. They just think this is what it's supposed to be like, too. It's very much like the American South. Often Koreans aren't even aware of the term Protestant or that they may be practicing a more fundamentalist evangelical version of Protestantism because this is the only version of Christianity they know. Kind of like American hegemony. It's absolute. So they often think of Catholics as non-Christians, which goes back to Sigmund Rhee, who was not only pro-American and anti-communist, but also anti-Catholic. You know, like I've always heard like snippets like a cousin telling me but oh yeah you know like my cousins like in-laws like like we're part of like southern baptist churches and like what koreans in southern baptist churches how does that work i think uh a lot of korean churches actually have associations with southern churches and they still like pay some kind of like fee to a bunch of them so this whole like money trail involved 
And it's all like back and forth to push Americanism and anti-communism. And then part of how Korean Christianity, Korean Protestant Christianity tends to be much more culty, which leads to anti-communism and a lot of like far right type of politics, which we'll get into actually, as we delve into your article, because that's all going to come up. So let's talk about your article a little bit more. What made you decide to write this article? So um, like most Koreans, I've, you know, done Taekwondo since I was little. It's kind of fun. I'm not like an athletic person. I'm actually like quite overweight. That's kind of partially why I'm doing the military. But like I've done Taekwondo since I want to say I was nine or 10. Originally, it was just for like the reasons a lot of kids do it. It's, oh, you know, you're bullied. You want to be athletic, you know, whatever. So I did that for a while. Um, ended up kind of leaving it as I just kind of grew older, but I got back into Taekwondo around high school for, again, the same reason I'm just, I wanted to lose weight. But um, this time it wasn't um, Olympic Taekwondo or um, WT Taekwondo, as, like that's the kind of mainstream version. Actually, my favorite name is WTF, but you can't call that anymore because he unfortunately changed it. But <laughs> um, the style I learned in Vietnam was called ITF Taekwondo. And it was actually very interesting, very weird, because the person who was teaching it actually was personally appointed by the president of of the um, the largest ITF federations. There's three, which we'll get into later. Um, he personally trained trained on the Trey Hong He, who was the who was considered the the founder of Taekwondo. He was sent by the president of the federation to restart in Vietnam because Vietnam for a long time banned ITF style. But um, when he, around the same time he came to Vietnam, the president died in a in the earthquake in in Haiti, and so he ended up being stranded there. And he just said, "Eh, I'll just I guess start a gym, get married." But I never like dug into why there's different federations before because it just wasn't. I just thought, oh, you know, there's just different federations. You know, all sports have that. But now that I started a new one and kind of discovered, it's just, like a very different style. So, you know, Olympic Taekwondo is is very sporty, right? It's very fast, it's very flowery. But this one. The Selhita was like this was this was a fighting art. This was like Potter hurt. Like it was it was a little funny. He was just like teaching like toddlers in this like very thick Polish accent. It's okay, this is how you smash the nose. Wanna do no 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 Sarah, you're not doing it strong enough. So is ITF Taekwondo what they practice in the DPRK? Yeah, yeah, yes. Or I should say it has its lineage to Chaehong Hee, who we'll get into, but who defected to North Korea. So in that way, its lineage is to North Korea because that's where Cheong Yi was, right? Yeah, and you can still see that, like the the fact that it's 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 a uh, I don't want to say it's a militarist art, but it's basically it, it is you know it's it's the moves you see in MMA, it's the moves you see soldiers do, right? Like this is not for show, this is to hurt, this is to take down an opponent. And this was more authentic to what it was prior to the Olympics, right? Exactly, yeah. That's what kind of made me think about. This is like a very different style. It's like when you think of like different soccer federations, right? Like Amer- the American Soccer Federation and the British Soccer Federation, the Italian Soccer Federation, it's all playing the same sport. But like these two arts, ITF and WTF, they're like basically different martial arts. So sharing the same name almost makes you think they're similar when they might as well have different names then. Yeah, no, like my master straight up said he did not consider them the same martial art. He says, well, like, One's a martial art, one's something else. He was like very, she had very strong feelings about that. So because of ITF's connections to North Korea, is that something you could even learn in South Korea or even in the U.S.? Um, in the South, I think they rarely acknowledge it, except 
like in the news because occasionally there are joint demonstrations because Taekwondo is like a diplomatic tool. It's kind of like ice hockey was during the Olympics. But whenever they do do it together, like it's always brought up as like these styles are just like very different. You know, you cannot, you can't synchronize these styles. In the U.S., I don't think it's ever talked about because it just doesn't make sense business-wise. Like, if you're setting up an ITF gym, the last thing you want to mention is that, oh, our founder defected to North Korea. <laughs> so it's taboo then. Oh, yeah, it's very taboo. But you can then, through the ITF Taekwondo, learn the final form for Black Belt that Cheonghee created, which is Chuche. Yeah, yeah. Actually, there's an interesting story behind it because the reason he created that was there was a, it was he was replacing another form. Um, the original form was called, um, I think it was Kodang, but it was, it was I think, the pen name of Cho Manchik, I think was the name of the guy. He was um, a very famous Korean independence activist. He was actually, interestingly, I think one of the most popular public figures in Northern Korea at the time, but he was a uh, right-wing nationalist, you know, which in a Christian pastor, so he was anti-communist, so he got perched when the communists came to power. And um, because because Choi Hong is from the North, he he actually used to idolize them. But when he came to North Korea, he's like, "Well, I, I can't have this form," so he changed it to when I was pro North Korean, which was why it was called Juche. On Taekwondo Wiki, it says Juche is one of the second degree black belt forms used in ITF style Taekwondo. And you just like imagine if you're just like going to an ITF gym in like Madison, Wisconsin, and then. The like last form you've learned to get your belt is just juche. You just ask why is this called juche? <laughs> so how we'll approach this is to have you read the article, and then we'll stop in between, so that you can expand on some points, so that I can ask you some questions, and we could kind of discuss it. I've included a link to the article in the show notes if you want to follow along. Well, I just kind of I just kind of thought of something. So his Korean name is Choi Hong Hee, but in English you would pronounce it Choi Hong Hee. Pronounce it how you were initially doing it because people are going to be reading along, so they'll be able to connect your pronunciation with the written text. Because I mean, romanizations just get really fucking weird. I've ranted about that online that romanizations isn't actually even like phonetic. It's not. If you actually broke this down phonetically, you would spell a lot of these different. I used to confuse the hell of you as a kid. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I'll just uh, just start again. 1938 would be the year that would forever change Choi Hong Hee's life. That was the year Choi gambled away all the money his mother had saved for schooling. In a fit of panic, Choi smashed the ink bottle over the winner's head before running off to Japan. The man Choi had nearly killed was a local wrestler who swore that if Choi ever came back to the village, he would tear the five-foot-tall boy limb from limb. Four years later, Choi did come back to the village, but not before gathering a small crowd to watch him smash several roof tiles with such speed that the wrestler Da Chue was having a stroke. He would later call this martial art Taekwondo, and after rising to become a general in the South Korean army, named himself the founder. So safe to assume then, Cheong-hee went to Japan and learned karate. Oh yeah, so this is actually like a very controversial part of the story. <laughs> because, so this is, like, this is like a very famous story, right? This is like how he always starts, where did Taekwondo begin? Which is it's kind of funny. He basically says Taekwondo begins because I, I robbed a man out of like a fair game. But um, so he claimed he went to Japan. He claimed he got a second Don Black Belt. And that's really controversial because it's, it's highly disputed and most likely false. Um, he probably learned maybe a couple of years, but like not enough to get to the level he claimed. 
but um, I don't know karate too well. But I think the reason why was because second dawn was a level you needed to be considered an instructor. Some of the IETF Federation websites claimed there were documents that prove he was teaching students at a local YMCA. I ended up asking Alex Gillis, who wrote the book Get a Lot of Information from. He wrote this very amazing history of Taekwondo called The Killing Art that debunked a lot of the myths. And he very strongly disputes. He says there's just no evidence of, of, of the claims they're saying. He's never seen these documents. They've never been publicly revealed. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. A lot of Cheongi's story reminds me of Bruce Lee's story too, because there was no internet, there's no way to verify anything when he came to the US. He was like this martial arts master, which was based mostly on Orientalism. He's an Asian guy. Of course, you're going to buy that he's a master and he's very good. But if you actually do the math and look up his bio, I think he only actually trained with Ip Man and Wing Chun for only like three or four years before he moved to the US. So that's like the extent of his training. And back then, you trained what, like maybe like two hours a day, like three days out of the week or something like that. So compared to like people who were training like seven days a week today, it was very different, right? But then when he arrived here, it was his master when other people had been training like 20 years or something. Oh, that's interesting. I never knew that. I didn't, I never knew that, uh, that, uh, I don't want to say fraud is too strong of a word, but that, you know, Bruce Lee was, a uh, a showman. Oh, I guess he was, I wasn't, he was a showman. No, no, he was a showman because his dad is an actor. He comes from a performance family that is rooted in theater. So yeah. It's interesting because even like MMA people still worship Bruce Lee, which I find interesting because they hate Wing Chun. But they they idolized him. So. <laughs> that's more based on Orientalism, right? And that's something I'll bring up later on. But there's a lot of like this martial arts myth making that's uniform to everything. So a lot of the stuff you'll bring up about Taekwondo applies to a lot of other martial arts origin stories. So they all kind of like pull from each other and they're all basically fabricated anyway. So that's one of the reasons I wrote this article was this what's so interesting about Taekwondo is basically how it's it's not an original story. This is basically the template for every like myth, not just for martial arts, but for capitalism. Like, if you ever read like a biography of like, these like industrial titans or like CEOs or billionaires or whatever, and just like I, I pray to God you don't, just because they're they're badly written a lot of times. <laughs> but it's the same myth. It's basically this man claims to be this prodigy since birth and through hard work and his great ideas, he built his empire. But the reality is, no, he's he was in like business is more likely a fraud. But more importantly, what made him stand from others was he was just a better marketer. He was a better salesman. And more importantly, he was a better administrator. Just like they were, he was able to get smart people from different backgrounds in like one room and get them to work on a single project. It was like a highly collectivist thing, except only one person got all the credit. <laughs> yeah, like Rockefeller to Ford is a template for sure. And by a local wrestler, we can assume it's Shidam or Korean belt wrestling, right? Um, I think it's safe to assume it's Shidam. Um, I tried to, when you, when you sent this question, I actually tried to dig into it because um, he never specifies. And looking at it, no one actually ever does specify why I assumed it's belt wrestling is because it's very popular throughout Korea. But 
interestingly enough, belt wrestling is popular and exists throughout Asia and the Middle East. So when I say Asia, I mean like Central Asia, East Asia, South Asia, and all throughout the Middle East as well. And I think there might be even versions of belt wrestling in some Pacific islands. So I don't know if it has a common ancestry, but people just figured out, hey, you put belts around people and then you can use it to play a game of who can knock over who. I mean, that would make sense. I don't know when she and them started, but like, I mean, Korea was, you know, the tributary states of several empires, China, Mongolia. Um, there was even Japanese invasions. So I wouldn't be surprised if it came externally. Let's read the next part. What started as a martial art in a tiny peninsula has 70 million practitioners in 203 nations today. It made the careers of famed action stars like Chuck Norris and John claude Van Damme. A year after student-led protests forced military dictatorship to accept democratic elections, Taekwondo was introduced to the Olympics, the second martial art to do so after Judo. What is less known is that the founder of Taekwondo's largest federation was an agent for South Korean secret police, or that Choi Hong Yi's son was once arrested for training North Korean commandos. So for most Westerners, they had heard the U.S. brought democracy to Korea, but that was a lie because how can you have democratic elections, right, if it was always a democracy? But then I have argued that it's democratic elections in quotes because it's a country where, first of all, the left was eradicated and suppressed, right? And there was like a resurgence of the left. It always tried to come back, but it was always re repressed. And a lot of the pre-existing left, like literally were murdered. And then the U.S. still has operational authority. And there's still a national security law that prevents a lot of left-wing speech. They use it whenever they want, if they want to arrest leftists. So whether Korea is Truly, uh, democracy is, I'd say no, but, you know, that's up for debate. Oh, no, without a doubt. That is not up for debate. That's just a fact. <laughs> like, even the, the Korean president, like, was it like a year ago, literally said to the UN, we don't have control over things that are our right. Like, we don't have control over our foreign policy. We don't have control over our diplomatic policy with our neighbors. We don't have control <laughs> over our military. Right. As you point out, like, the South Korean military is so operationally under the command of the US. Yeah. So both Koreas, want peace have said that on more than one occasion during different even regimes and the u.s can say no right so our consent doesn't matter yeah i mean well that's why like the the peace process started in moonjin failed basically was the u.s just delayed delayed or just straight up said no as they did in um the hanoi summit i think so i try to soften it for people who might not be ready to recalibrate but you know you got two koreans here telling you it's not a democracy and I try to soften the blow, but you just gave him the killing blow. Let him know there's no democracy. So there you go. Let's continue. Decades before K-pop or Squid Game were in the global lexicon, Taekwondo had clawed its way to become South Korea's main cultural export. Raised by every major historical event that rocked the nation in the past century, including but not limited to Japanese imperialism, the Korean War, military dictatorships, and even the emergence of anti-communist cults, it had come to be seen by many this symbolized South Korea's resurrection from a nameless colony into the global powerhouse that Koreans still take pride in to this day. Would you say Taekwondo was used as a weapon for right-wing culture war? Oh yeah, no, without a doubt. That, I mean, like it was, it was Taekwondo was first elevated as a national sport under the Park Chung-hee regime. It was part of a, a wider program too. I think I, I say like essentially turned the whole country into a boot camp. Even now, like some people, you know, some people say like that traditional martial arts they call it kind of culty. I don't know if that's like fair, but like what they really mean is that like it adopts a lot of like military style, right? Like the the chance, right? When you say like tech one, that's that's just like 
basically an altered version of like you know like just screaming loyalty as you do in the army i would say for taekwondo maybe in this period we could even draw further connection to cults just because not only did taekwondo adopt from religion but taekwondo was also tied to protestant christianity in korea but also to like the moonies and other like religious cults that we'll get into later on but i think Traditional martial arts tends to be culty anyway, but then on top of that, you add culty religion on top of it and anti-communism, and it gets real culty. So the next section is Taekwondo's foundation myth. According to the World Taekwondo Headquarters, also known as the Kukiwon, Taekwondo is rooted in a 1,500-year-old martial art practiced by the Hwarang, warriors handpicked from Shila Dynasty's nobility. The problem with that statement is that it's a total lie. The Hwarang were not only not, an elite group of soldiers, they were actually young male aristocrats who danced and dressed in women's clothing. Yi Gongju, who wrote many of the textbooks that fabricated this myth, confessed just as much in an interview. He said, We didn't have anything else to offer in the early days of trying to introduce Taekwondo abroad. If we said it was an ancient traditional Korean martial art, we gained some bragging rights. Plus, this played well abroad. However, even if there are similarities, this just isn't the truth. So didn't the Kukiwon recently award Trump a black belt? Yeah, that happened. I mean, I guess I'm not shocked. I mean, honorary black belts are not a new thing. It was just definitely a little bizarre. I think this happened after he left office and the whole like January 6th shit happened. I think it still speaks to Kukiwon's origins of how it tends to be more of a right-leaning organization. Actually, a friend recently sent me a picture of the place that he takes his kids for Taekwondo. And they had a portrait and a plaque honoring Korea's first dictator, somebody you mentioned earlier. What the? (laughs) Sigmund Rhee. And the Taekwondo school was actually being run out of a church. And so we've already talked about Taekwondo and its connection to the church and its connection to right-wing politics. So, I mean, there was an example of it to this day, right? That's so weird because it's usually very, like, subtle. It's like, oh, the historical baggage. It's just, like, overtly here is a plaque to, like, Korea's first dictator. (laughs) Even uh, where I am in Koreatown, I know a lot of people who first learned Taekwondo out of a Korean church. So there is a lot of that where Taekwondo, for a lot of people, is synonymous with their church. It was also synonymous with a lot of right-wing beliefs. So maybe it's depoliticized more in Korea than it has in the U.S., yeah, well, I mean, I think in Korea, Taekwondo is just like a thing you do for most people. Like, it's just, oh, yeah, it's just that thing I have to do to get middle school credit. It's, you know, especially because it's, I mean, it's its role globally, which we'll talk about later. It's just, it's just changed so much. But what you said about, like, Cookie One still having, like, very sh- strong, like, a right-wing legacy. Like, um, I think I was, I was when you um, mentioned that, I actually, like, dig deeper into into, into the story besides just that like horrifying picture that's now seeping into my brain. <laughs> like he's not even like using his fist right. It's like a weird like it looks like cat paws. I don't. But he's gonna brag about it forever. <laughs> yeah, no, he's just <laughs> I can't do the impression. So the Cookie One president, the one in the picture giving him like the um, the, the the belt, his name is Lee Dong Sup, and I didn't. I was looking this up who he was. He was actually a former National Assembly member from the People's Power Party. The Kukmin Wihim, which is I probably not the name of when he was a politician. He like it's I mean it's kind of a joke that Korean political parties like change their name every like seven years. Yeah. But that's the Conservative Party directly descended from the junta. Oh, he's okay. just he's not some normal dude. Okay, that makes even more sense. And yeah, he's not in jail either. So there you go. Well, I mean, maybe that's why he 
he jumped out of politics. You can't put a techno man in jail. He's honorable, like martial arts guy, right? He's just an athlete. He's not a politician anymore. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Alex Gillis's extraordinary 1998 book, A Killing Art, digs deep into how Taekwondo's history was rewritten to fit the national zeitgeist, which characterized South Korea's violent modernization. Gillis reveals that Taekwondo's origins did not emerge in medieval Korea, but among the thousands of Koreans who migrated or were kidnapped to Japan. The lives of most Korean migrants in the Japanese empire were characterized by grinding poverty and routine terror by roving fascist gangs. One of the most gruesome examples of anti-immigrant terror was when 2,000 Koreans were massacred in the aftermath of the Great Kanto earthquake. Naturally, the most hot-blooded of these migrants learned karate as a means for self-defense. When the Japanese empire fell, they moved back to their homeland and set up karate gyms, which became a hotbed for street gangs and soldiers. These karate gyms, or kwans, would become the seeds for what would later be known as taekwondo. Can you tell us a bit more about the Kanto massacre? Yeah, so the Kanto massacre was the was um, in the aftermath of something called the Great Kanto earthquake in 1923, when around 140,000 people were killed. Afterwards, Japanese government spread a rumor in the news that Koreans and leftists were poisoning the wells and looting in the aftermath, which um, incited racist mobs, primarily led by far right paramilitaries, to murder. The numbers is very deceiving. I used like the most conservative number that like wasn't absurd. Like I think I think it said 2,000. But some news say like it ranges between six thousand to ten thousand, you know. And they didn't just kill um, Koreans. That was the bulk. It was a largely it was a largely like ethnic slaughter. But a lot of people they also killed were um, communists and anarchists. Like um, I don't know if you ever watched the movie Anarchists from Colony, but they kind of just show that. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of Germany, which, as we all know, was an ally to Imperial Japan. But instead of Jews and socialists, it was Koreans and socialists. You know, it's never wasps and capitalists. Yeah, capitals never seem to notice that they're the ones who never get got, right? Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, this is like something, I always kind of like joke like every year one of my friends discovers that like Japan used to be a fascist country. <laughs> and it's it's like, yeah, no, I mean, of course, this was in the 20s. So it was still during a Taisho democracy era, I believe. You started to see the seeds of that, right? The, the rise of far-right militaries, you know, anti-communist violence, um, ethnic or racial violence, right? It's like Koreans were a colonized people. But going back to these ethnic Koreans in Japan learning karate, it sounded like Taekwondo was trying to use the colonizer's tool to fight the colonizer. Then it became Cobra Kai. Um, well, that was kind of that was like one of the main kind of points I wanted to like push in this article, which is like like Taekwondo was fundamentally the story about like colonized people who used the tools of the colonizers to try to restore their humanity. And just, you know, kind of how that failed, <laughs> you know, like, um, I mean, I, I said this like very provocatively, like I said, there was like a failed decolonization project, which it's a little controversial because, you know, decolonization involves ex- like eliminating the colonial remnants of the culture. But like, realistically, that's never what actually happens. Like even like Amokar Cabral, one of the like greatest, you know, um, decolonial leaders in the world, right? It's like. A lot of his like policies they wanted implemented before he he was killed were essentially during his time. I think he was like a bureaucrat in the in the in the colony at the time, and it was his attempt to try to like merge the like best parts that he learned in the Portuguese education system with like the indigenous culture that was like repressed in his in his country. So it's like Taekwondo really was attempting something very similar in that sense, and then. 
a lot of times these types of movements get co-opted, sabotaged, sublimated in some other way, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, that's a uh... That's like kind of what the, like the, Yushin regime, the Yushin regime was, right? Well, let's save that for later then. Yeah. So uh, many of Taekwondo's pioneers would be conscripted in a country civil war where they would make their name. One of those men was Nam Tae-hee. In 1952, Nam enraged his commanding officer who sent Nam's unit on a suicide mission into no man's land where they were soon caught up in a three-day offensive by the People's Liberation Army. To his horror, Nam realized that he'd run out of bullets before the Chinese ran out of bodies. The morning after the battle, Nam discovered that he was sleeping in the bodies of several dozen Chinese soldiers he had beaten to death with his bare hands. So this goes back to the template, because uh, killing dozens of armed soldiers with his bare hands sounds very much like a mythical martial arts origin story. And this actually particular one, I've heard a bunch of times for other martial arts or other stories where, you know, it's not always like armed soldiers, but it's like some martial artist or fighter goes into a rage where they lose their mind. And then when they wake up, they're underneath the pile of bodies that they themselves killed. It's actually like a trope in a lot of like manhwa or manga because it's such a well-known story that are in so many like fighting fables and martial arts fables. And uh, there's a whole like, genre of storytelling and comic books and uh, young adult novels that are centered around that. So yeah, it's become a trope, you know, like I woke up and there's all these dead bodies. Anybody who's watched anime knows what I'm talking about. So this sounds very much like that. I mean, that's, isn't that like the beginning of Naruto, right? And he's just is like kind of goofy kid. And then like he sees his, he thinks his mentor died and he just goes into like a rage and nearly like beats the dude to death or something. Yeah. And I think like the manga Baki has done this like 50 million times, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, actually, that's kind of like the interesting thing. And so, like, Gil's book, largely, I kind of, I haven't really, I don't think I've emphasized it in the article, but Gillis's book really likes to make a lot of these allusions to like Orientalist tropes and, and like ancient Korean and like Chinese fables. And that's not because he's orientalizing Taekwondo, it's just he's, what he's trying to do is he's trying to like use the framework that Taekwondo kind of like describes their martial art and kind of try to like subvert it in this sense. But also at the same time, like, so I'll be honest, I really can confirm these stories. These, these are all, these are all anecdotal. Well, that's the thing about these martial arts stories because there's nobody there to verify it except the person telling the story. Yeah. But also I, I you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it was a grain of salt. Like, I think these are like, at least these stories that I've put, I think are believable just because like this, this was a very different time. Like I'm not saying it didn't happen at all. I'm saying there's going to be some embellishing. Oh, was that a doubt? Well, I mean, yeah, like uh, at the beginning, right? Che Hong, he claimed he had a second down black belt. That was probably a lie. He probably was good enough probably to get a second black belt, even in a short amount of time, because maybe he just got really good at fighting, but never got the opportunity. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the realistic answer to probably, I mean, like he eventually became a good fighter, right? Like he, <laughs> Like he like he became president of of Taekwondo of the Taekwondo Federation or, or like whichever one of them like for a reason. I feel like every one of the stories that you mentioned here is rooted in some kind of truth, but it's like ultimately it's rooted in the truth. It's not the whole truth, right? I feel like there's going to be a lot of like showmanship. Oh yeah, well I mean it's like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, right? It's like there's just like a lot of embellishment of their story in like the early UFC, which is kind of weird because like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu like. You, it's easily proven to be just like a really effective martial art. They didn't need a embellish. But they still <laughs> felt a need. 
<laughs> yeah. Before, if you're just like, no, no, we have to like rig this fight or like ridiculously slant it so that we, you know, because it, it is kind of necessary if you want to build up a new martial art. It's just like every one of these stories is, again, it's, it's based on showmans, not merit. Oh, yeah. Even though it was really like Elio Gracie, who is known as the person who really put it on the map, it was his son, Horian Gracie, who has a background in marketing. Well, he's a trained lawyer, but he actually has a background in business and marketing and show business, actually. He was also an actor. So he was the guy. He was the showman who came up with a lot of these uh, mythos around Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And same thing, the same template that you're talking about with Taekwondo happened with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And just like Taekwondo, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was also run by anti-communist fascists in Brazil. Yeah, I remember I was kind of, I guess, not surprised learning about that, but I didn't know to like what extent, right? Like, wasn't like a, a couple Gracies caught supporting Jair Bolsonaro? Oh, yeah. Not even caught. They were proud of it. That's true, yeah. So it's amazing to me how like so many of these stories are the same. Kind of like, it makes you like wonder how much is true or not. Because it's just like, is this like just a common kind of culture between martial arts or is it, did they just like look at another martial art and see how can we how can we change the real story so i can fit this mold you know it's i really don't have an answer to that because it's just like how can you prove these stories they're impossible but at the same time they are believable for their time period and also they're all legitimate right so they didn't even need to lie but they did it for propaganda also for political reasons because they are masculine they are about fighting a lot of right-wing fascist types are attracted to it and then they're going to want to take control of it yeah you know in the uh the next paragraph we kind of we kind of started at the beginning of like where does where does it go from reality to myth if you love the southpaw project please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on patreon it'll help us supplement the cost of running this project the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. The battle will traumatize Nam for the rest of his life, but when Choi heard Nam's story, he recruited him to train other South Korean soldiers in what still could largely be, be called karate. Nam was so integral to ensuring Taekwondo's emergence from obscurity that it was he who broke his 12 roof tiles in front of South Korea's first president, Strongman, Lee Sung-man. Ri was so pleased with the display that he gave Choi approval to build a martial arts gym inside a military base in Kangwon. Choi called this gym the Odokwan, Gym of My Way. Funny enough, it was Ri who gave Choi the idea for the name Taekwondo. When Choi told Ri that Nam had used karate to smash those roof tiles, the president bizarrely insisted that what Nam practiced wasn't karate, but instead was Taekyeon, a Korean street game. Before the war, Ri was a noted independence activist and could not accept that what he saw was Japanese, so Trey rolled with it. Taekyeon was, as one of Taekwondo's origins, was another lie that was propagated for decades. Taekwondo had taken over the military, but it would take another strong man for Taekwondo to be elevated to a national pastime. So the name Taekwondo then was invented by Sigmund Rhee. So in a way, Taekwondo then will always be linked to Korea's first U.S.-backed dictator. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the reason why like Taekwondo is, is most known in the U.S., right? Well, that's why that Taekwondo gym that I was talking about has a picture of the guy who named it. It's kind of funny because 
I mean, I'd say to arguably Taekwondo should be more linked to Park Chung Hee than Lee Sung Man because. You know, Lee Sung Ma was was a dictator, but he was not a military dictator. He was not an officer. He was he was an academic, which is funny to think about. But yeah, he he came up with a name, and it it really kind of showed the beginning of why this myth was propagated. Like why Taekwondo had to have so much like um um lies surrounded by it was because it was it had it faced the contradiction of 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 being a post of starting in a post colonial state, right? It was like you know you can't call this japanese it's 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 too you would it would just never be accepted and so what do you do well you have to build this whole myth that it's actually this indigenous martial art and it's it's just it's so tenuous because i've never practiced techyon and i heard there actually is like a martial arts component to it but just like from what i researched like it's it's more of a game like it's i mean like i'd probably say it's probably closer to I guess shidem in that sense, because shidem is is sort of like more of a sport, right? Than like learning how to fight. But <laughs> so it's 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 just it's just weird because it's like you know like taekwondo like is at that time or like I used to call it karate. You know, this was a battle tested art that people used to kill each other with. Like it wasn't just this like fun sport. <laughs> Prior to Olympics, though, it sounds like it was various different karate styles culminating into a uniform system. That was Taekwondo, right, at that time. And then later on, we'll talk about how they started differentiating from the Japanese style that they learned more by emphasizing more the kicks, which you talk about. But it's like taking the best from a bunch of different karate arts and then emphasizing the kicks. And this was like early Taekwondo then. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the real story of of like Taekwondo's origin, because I kind of focus more on how the misbuilding was made. And I think this is actually now acknowledged in Korean martial arts as the real origin was it was the Kwans in Seoul, I believe. I don't know how many. I want to say five. The most famous was Chongdoguan, uh, which itself is like a very interesting story because it was the Chongdoguan was started by one of those people who learned in, in Japan, I believe. It was started by I think a man named um Iwon Kuk, and he was interesting because he hated Isangman. I don't know specifically why, because I think he himself was an anti-communist. But at one point, he ended up fleeing the country, I believe, because re accused him of sending martial artists, artists to assassinate him. But this is the the person that trained Nam, actually. He wasn't trained by Choi Hong Hee. He was brought aboard by him. He was trained by Yi Won Kuk, one of these like original masters. Actually, I feel like I've seen martial arts schools in the U.S. called Chengdukwan, so named after that gym. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean... It's also, I don't know if this really means anything, but the country that Lee Won Kuk fled to was Japan. Another thing I wanted to mention is there's a Korean American who started a martial arts here in the U.S. called Parangdo. Yes. So if you ever hear about that martial arts, it's not even like founded in Korea. It was founded, trademarked, copyright in the U.S. And so the Federation is here. And he claimed he learned it, the martial art of the Hwarang, <laughs> while living in a cave with a monk. That's where he learned it. This is their myth-making, and he was the last monk who knew that martial art. Of course. So you talked about Taekyeon too, and there's been a modern renaissance of Taekyeon and people trying to learn that as well. How much of that is what people were doing years ago? I don't know, but I can tell you what Hwarang do is actually kind of a cool martial art, but the origin story is basically the same one of Taekwondo that it came from Hwarang warriors, right? It's completely fabricated. As far as uh, Taekyeon, how close it is to actual like tradition? I don't know. 
I kind of always knew of it before it was a martial art the same way you did, that it's like a series of games. Yeah. But the Hwarangdo origin story, Taekwondo origin story, it's the same origin story. And it's all, to your point, right? This whole article is about they didn't get it from the Hwarang. Well, there's just there's so many layers, right? It's a Korean-American martial art pretending to be an ancient indigenous martial art, which was this, which was a myth fabricated by another martial art in Korea based from another empire. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a burrito of fabrication. It is. Oh, that's that actually is the perfect analogy. I'm going to steal that from now on. <laughs> Let's continue. So the next chapter, Park Chung-hee's Korea. Like Choi, Park Chung-hee came from humble beginnings, the son of disgraced aristocrats turned farmers. His mother tried to have Park aborted several times because she did not believe they could feed another mouse. And these fears were not unfounded as malnourishment would stun Park's height at 5'4". Nevertheless, Park worked his way out of poverty and secured a comfortable job at a middle school. But he quickly grew bored with the banal life of a teacher, so in 1939, Park wrote an oath to the emperor in his own blood and mailed the letter to, Manchu- to the Manchukuo Military Academy. 22 years later, Pak stormed the presidential palace with a submachine gun, becoming South Korea's first military dictator. Let's highlight this point. One of South Korea's U.S.-backed dictators pledged his life in blood to the Japanese emperor. This is what being liberated from Japanese occupation looks like, apparently. To have your country run by a former servant of your previous colonizer. Yeah, no, I mean, um, so I think it was under the Nomoyon administration that they begin the, the process to actually look back at this history. And one of them was they wanted to investigate the families of Japanese collaborators who I think are called um, Chinirpa. I think that's the name. It's like our version of Kusano, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, I mean, it might even be more extreme than Kusano because, you know, Kusano is a more general term. But like Chinirpa no, you were actually descended and profited off of, you know, exploitation of people. But um, um, like it's very specific, like phrase to use for like if you if you were to use that phrase to someone who like was not the fam from descended from family collaborators, you could be like sued, right? <laughs> but um, the one of the names of the list of Chinupa, and this was very important because people lost like their property over this, right? Like politicians had to resign. One of those names was Pak Chung Hee, and it was super super controversial. Like people like accused it of being like a political move and all that. But it was like, no, he was a Japanese military officer that was always, that was always like public knowledge. You know, he, we can confirm he signed the letter declaring like his lord to the emperor in blood, which is like not just signing, like he fuck, he had to like pierce his hand and, and give his, give his DNA. It was, um, you know, I mean, like this is like a very controversial point and, <laughs> Like I want, I want to be like careful when I say this because, like, it it was a lot more complicated, right? Like, I don't know. Like my dad, he's my dad's quite conservative. I remember I like asked him about this, and he just said, like, if you were going to arrest every like Chinopa, you'd have to like arrest ninety percent of the country because every someone was like everyone was like complicit to some degree. That's like a very extreme thing to say, and I don't agree with that. But he was like onto something about like, look, like Pak came from like a dirt poor family, right? It's like he's like I think they were like hill farmers, right? They like they like grew like crops on like a like on a literal hill. They ate like, one of the stories he gave us is that like he used to eat like barley because he couldn't afford rice, <laughs> which is now considered more of the superfood. And white rice, <laughs> the bad poor people food, right? Is it? Oh, <laughs> but um, 
you know, and so like one of the important things was like so the reason he was poor was because he actually came from like a like a noble family, like one of the like poor ones. Because I think his his dad um, didn't pass the test back in the dynasty days, but um, since but um, so it like, came from, like a well-connected family until he joined the Donghak Rebellion, which um, for those who don't know was a uh, I think the first nationwide peasants rebellion. It had like a lot of demands, including ex- expelling foreign and inter- like foreign and foreigners that they felt were planning to control the country, like the West and Japan. Um, they wanted to abolish the what we call like a feudal system. I don't know if that's really an accurate term, but you know, like the system of like landed aristocrats and 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 peasants. You know, they wanted to begin land redistribution. You know, um, and abolish really those 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 class divisions. And eventually, you know, it's it's very like very very famous rebellion. A lot of Korean Korean social movements tied her legacy too. But uh, so Pak's father actually joined that rebellion, and because and when it when it failed, he was disgraced, and that's why he became a poor farmer. And so for him, he had no love for the Joseon dynasty. It's like this 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 dynasty ruined my family. You know, he grew up under the colonial period. You know, in his view, he says, "Well, you know." The the Korean and his view is is like Korea failed because he said that uh, what was it the phrase he said that like the country was ruled by like people stabbing each other in the back and then the people who were stabbed in the back saw that as like a way of life I'm I'm paraphrasing but it's like overall what he said and you know and there's like truth to that right the Joseon dynasty was horribly corrupt like like at the beginning life at the beginning of Japanese colonization life like really didn't change with the average Korean like eventually got way worse but beginning it wasn't which is just how bad the joseph dynasty was right and so he sees that right he's just like well why should he be proud of this this kingdom you know and he looks at japan and he's like this used to be like a similar like it was a backwards feudal like island right and then it became like an industrial empire and he just thought well this is the future well it's like early incel logic right you get bullied by the chads like the jocks and like all these buff guys it would make sense that you as somebody who's downtrodden and bullied would hate those people but that was like the whole reason why like incel was such like an interesting thing or such an eye-opening moment for people was because they realized a lot of like the revenge of the nerds ideas or like they thought that kids who were bullied and picked on would end up hating those people but actually, no, incel culture showed they started idolizing those people. They started idolizing their victimizers, right? Which is still very much part of right-wing culture today, which is like, they all want to be the chads. They all want to be like the people who used to pick on them. And I think that's always been around. It just has a name now, but it is this thing of like, the victim wants to be like the victimizer instead of wanting to overthrow the victimizer. And often it's rooted in toxic masculinity which is why it's like the incels, right? Involuntary celibates, right? Pak Chung in that same way looks up to that type of power and envies it. Yeah, I mean, like, um, like you mentioned Cobra Kai. Like, that was one of the influences for this article. It was, right, there was that famous article, Cobra Kai, Twilight of the American Empire. You know, and there's like, I think a quote that really like embodies that kind of period, right? He says like, when you find your tribe, when you learn how to fight, when you have access to weapons, what prevents you from becoming a victimizer, even if you still identify as a victim? And, you know, I, I kind of talk about it quite a bit in this section about why did people like Pac became the person he was? And you can just like, Pac is like a very, like, I think, traditional story 
about Korean collaborators during this period. Like, um, if you look at other people, like uh, Pek Sun Yup, he was, I think, a general that recently died. He was considered like a war hero, but he was like a South Korean military officer who like killed other Koreans. You know, like before the Civil War, like when he was a, like, like when he was when he was a Japanese officer. It's it's a very similar story, right? Grew up poor. Uh, was alerted by the sense of military adventure and social mobility by collaborating with the Japanese. Your article will lay it out as we read the text, so let's continue. To legitimize his rule, Park based his regime on Minjok, a particular form of ethno-nationalism. The core tenets of Minjok are the purity of Korean identity, Sun Susong, and the obligation to regularly uplift Korea's cultural superiority, Uwosong. However, Park detested Korea's past, especially the Joseon dynasty, as we said, while he blamed for his family's poverty and a nation's capitulation of foreign powers, he once proclaimed that we should set ablaze all our history that was more like a storehouse of evil. He didn't quite set Korea's history ablaze, but he did rewrite it. While ethno-nationalism preceded the Park regime, it was during this era that it enveloped South Korea with such brashness. It was a time when Hangul was the world's most beautiful writing system, when the mountains and rivers of Korea possessed the best vistas on the globe and when Koreans were the smartest people on the planet. Park Jung-hee's transformation of South Korean society was premised on the restoration of what he called Korea's pure culture, one defined by patriotism and military strengths which had been erased during this period of colonial rule. So to this day then, ethno-nationalism and pro-Americanism still seems like hallmarks of the Korean right wing much as it is for most of the global right. I've seen so many right-wingers, even Bolsonaro, waving the American flag. So that still is very much a thing. And I know many leftists recently found out that writer George Orwell used to snitch on anyone he thought was too anti-American and too anti-white. Well, the anti-white part makes sense, but Orwell wasn't even American, but he thought that being anti-American was too suspect, right? So I think for a lot of right-wingers in general, they think of that as just being anti-capitalist. Because for a lot of the world, America and capitalism are interchangeable. I think Americans, especially American leftists, think capitalism is independent of America or it's like two separate things. But having only lived here, or if you live in the West, you don't understand how like the financial side of it works. But living in another country and having to deal more with money and the monetary system, you realize all roads of capitalism has to go through the U.S., so capitalism or America are the same thing. In in certain countries, yes, I think that would that would be fair. Um, especially like in yeah Korea, I think at the beginning that was that was more or less true, right? If you're pro-American, you're pro-capitalist, right? If you were if you were a communist, obviously you weren't pro-American. But I mean, like that thing you said about like right-wing nationalism. I mean, like it's like this. It was I think this. It was reading about Taekwondo that I first like began to dig into this and just like realizing like where did ethno-nationalism started in korea and it's like not started but when did it become such a like dominant ideology because the communists weren't ethno-nationalist but like for example one of the first like um programs the korean communist party had like actually said that like japanese and like chinese like workers in korea should be allowed to help build the communist project in korea right it was a very like internationalist thing and so like well wh- why did ethno-nationalism became this dominant viewpoint well it's it's that's kind of why I have a student. I don't actually know if you can say this in Korea without getting in trouble. I mean, maybe you can in an academic context, but politically, it's that South Korea was essentially founded as a 
anti-communist front. It was not founded on like on an ideology, right? Like even the U.S., right? Like at least had an ideology based on it. Like you can argue how how real it was, but it was it was something people believed in, right? Like you know, liberty, prosperity, blah blah blah, right? You know, like the Declaration of Independence had this very strong ideological foundation, but you you can't say that like South Korea was essentially a Frankenstein of right-wing nationalists, like, including people like Kim Gu, even though he was killed. You know, people like, um, I think his name was Lee Bum-suk, the leader of the, the Korean Restoration Army, and Japanese collaborators, right? You know, and it was just like for kind of like a semi-arbitrary reason. Not arbitrary, because there was like, obviously, racist sentiments involved. Like, why? That the U.S. just deliberately kept the colonial administration in place when they came, right? Because, you know, the Japanese administrators were a few people who spoke English, and they just had, like, a very, well, you know, these Koreans can manage themselves. So, but, you know, these Japanese, the Japanese collaborators, well, they work for an empire, so we can trust them. Yeah, they're the managerial class, so you just replace one boss for another boss, and they're used to it. Exactly, yeah. So you can't say... You're the country of independence fighters when you have Japanese collaborators in like the highest positions. <laughs> yeah. So it's like what glues them together is, well, we hate the guy up north, right? That's the only thing binding us together. And it's like, well, you can't use that alone because then people start to think, well, well, what's wrong with the guy up north? You know, it's like, oh, wait, they, they, they drove out of Japanese collaborators. Well, we, we like that. <laughs> and there's a reason why like most of these people's committees that formed after like independence were like led by left nationalists and communists. This is the end of part one. Taekwondo and Korean history explains everything. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a 5-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pulse. Hitting with the left. South Pulse. Sam. Paul. South Pulse. South Pole.